Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast where we chronicle all things 90s cam rock. In this episode, I speak with Mark Teal, who wrote Shine, a book about big shiny tunes, its origins, its impact, and much more. I hope you enjoy our chat. This is your first book, Shine. Why did you pick Big Shiny Tunes to write? Um, it was something that, like, Big Shiny Tunes, I think, has uh, has kind of really shaped my musical taste. And it's something I didn't even really realize until I was, like, you know, probably in my 20s. And when I had, like, you know, like, when I had kind of just, like, really, uh, like, really formed my taste in music. But um, I think that really set it off uh, was, um, you know, I used to work as a journalist and, um, and, when I was working at a publication called Ox, which was basically kind of like a Canadian music website, um, we used to put together a lot of just like, you know, like early 2010 style listicles. And um, and the ones that we always did on Canadian music and nostalgia content would do incredibly well. So like, um, so we always used to joke in the office that like the best post we could ever put out would be, you know, the 16 best tra- best Canadian tracks from Big Shiny Tunes and just you know, have that have just like embeds of all the videos from the track list. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> like, um, we never actually did that, but it probably actually would have been our best performing post. What kind of also got me thinking about it was, um, I also used to freelance for a, uh, an alt weekly in Calgary called fast forward where I used to work as a music editor. And one of the freelance stories that, uh, that I ended up writing about was about this this Big Shiny Tunes cover night that they were hosting uh, in support of Sled Island, like the big music festival out in Calgary. And it was all of these, like, you know, like, you know, very contemporary Calgary bands covering their favorite songs from Big Shiny Tunes. And it seemed like an incredibly fun night, but it was really interesting to see bands that were, you know, you know, made up of people who are, you know, 21, year, 21 years old, and people who are like 21, 22, and who were playing <laughs> these songs from Big Shiny Tunes. And it was like, oh, you know, this compilation, which, you know, w- kind of, at a certain point was like, you know, the butt end of a lot of jokes actually had a real tangible impact on people. So what was the, uh, the first call you made when you, when you decided you were going to do the book? Oh my gosh. So I remember when I started the book, I just didn't know where to start. Um, because you know, like I think when Big Shiny Tunes came out, at least the first one, which I based the book on, I was in middle school. Right. So I didn't really have the contacts in the music industry. I didn't really know who to speak to. So, um, at the time, uh, so I worked at Ox, as I mentioned before, and uh, and they were owned by a company called Blue Ant Media, who at the time also, um, you know, like had the Players Prize under their umbrella. So um, I was in the office every day with Steve Jordan, who used to run the Players Prize. And he was definitely, uh, you know, he was definitely involved in the music industry in the 90s. So I reached out to him and I was like, OK, well, um, Steve, I want to write a book about, you know, Big Shiny Tunes. Like, who do I contact? And he just gave me a bunch of names and it was off the races. So what was the first thing um, you wanted to know about the compilation? I mean, was you want to know its origins or, or what was the first kind of questions you had lined up for these people? I think I just wanted to know everything, right? Like I wanted <laughs> to know, like, like honestly, because, you know, I, like I listened to, you know, a lot of compilations um, in the 90s and it was how I discovered a lot of music, you know, and I knew I knew the role as, you know, as like best of albums. I knew the role as promotional tools for smaller labels. But for something like Big Shiny Tunes that had such a, you know, a big impact on a generation, you know, what was the thinking behind it? Right. Like, um, how did it start? Why did it start? So, yeah, I mean, like, it, it, yeah, it was really interesting because I think the thing that I really wanted to know 
was why they always had such strong Canadian content on it, despite the fact that it wasn't a strictly Canadian compilation. You know, like if you got a compilation from a small indie label, like if you bought a Sonic Onion uh, compilation, not that they were small, but if you bought a Sonic Onion compilation, that would be all of their bands and their scene, right? Um, and if you bought a compilation like, say, you know, the Now series, uh, you know, which was all pop music at the time, then it would just be the biggest hits. So I was so Big Shiny Tunes was kind of positioned in a strange way where um, they did have the biggest, you know, alternative alternative songs, but they also had a huge can rock contingent. And I know that was much music demo as a station, but um, but yeah, it was it was an interesting compilation in that regard. Let's run through that a little bit because those are a couple of questions I've always wanted answered as well as. Or why did it start and how did it start? So what did you learn? Yeah. So, I mean, what I, what I learned was that it was, it was very much uh, like a sales and marketing effort. Like its release date was, um, was right during the peak of buying season. It came out right before Christmas. Um, it came at a time when alternative music and pop music were kind of merging and, you know, an alternative rock was kind of becoming the dominant form of music. Um, those are all good reasons to put out a compilation. Um, but I also found out that much music at the time, especially speaking to people like, you know, Denise Donlin, the programmers had a really big say in what they put out, right? So they weren't going to put out something that was a purely cynical sales tool, right? So what I found out was interesting, though. The actual structure of it differed from, um, from say, you know, the Dance Mix series, which was also an incredible series. <laughs> but, you know, those I think those compilations tended to uh, tended to be working with one label and they tended to function more like traditional, um, you know, best of series compilations, right? There's like, there's a reason why, you know, dance mix 95 is full of just smash hits. Cause they were all smash hits and they ran that through, I, I believe that was with quality, but, uh, you know, for big shiny tunes, um, they had six labels involved, um, which they used to call the original six, like in hockey, right? Like, <laughs> And much music was able to kind of broker this relationship with, with a bunch of different labels uh, because they had the clout at the time, right? Like much music was not a label, but it did have access to, you know, the, to the T, to TVs and, you know, in households across Canada and to a demographic that was super valuable. So they were able to kind of broker this deal where they had six, six different labels contributing, which resulted in a good variety of tracks. Um, and it also really reflected like the Canadian content that much music had on television that they, stri they strive to show and much music you know when i was asking about about you know cancon regulations i, I remember i interviewed Denise dolan for the book who used to uh, used to head up much uh, on the programming side and she was like yeah you know we had no problem over indexing on uh on canadian music uh you know we like there's lots of good music at the time we didn't we never felt like we had to meet that quota we did we over indexed and um and that was really you know that was visible on on the compilation as well and what I found really interesting, too, was that um, from a programming perspective, they kind of tried to telegraph what would be a hit song in the next year, right? So some songs were safe picks, some songs were not, right? Like I look at a song like Pace by Pluto. Brush it off my sleeve 
that's a song that was never really a huge much music hit right but it was you know it was a gamble it was a gamble on the programmer's part to be like okay we're going to include this song because we think it's going to be big how do they navigate the relationships with six labels how do they know who do they just split the tracks up evenly do you did you get into any of that uh... i did not that's a really good question though <laughs> <laughs> how about the um, the selection of the actual songs though did you find out from the people who picked the songs to be on the record like specifically the canadian songs or um not specific. I think that it, it would have been a mix of their programming team, I believe, and of course people from the label. Um, like that was a, a really tough question to actually get to because I feel like not a lot of people remembered. Um, <laughs> so I like I did get some clues into this though. So I like I know that you know that the programming team was obviously very involved with put, putting Canadian music front and center. Like you know, I'm Mother Earth is that the first opening track on Big Shine Tunes one, and that's like a really bold move on what's what's a, a pretty star-studded compilation. But then, uh, but then, you know, uh, then when I spoke to Jay Ferguson from Sloan, uh, he did mention that there was that he believed that there was some label label pressure to have the good and everyone included on that album. So I think it was probably a little bit of a, a negotiation. What about the name? Did you ever discover who came up with the name and uh, any any other names in contention for the series? I didn't find any other names that were in contention for the series, but I did find out that a producer for much whose name is in the book and I can't remember. So I'm very sorry, <laughs> but it is, it was based off of, uh, off of shiny, happy people by REM. You know, they, they, they took something which was a known quantity in alternative music, which is REM, you know, by then, uh, you know, a real long standing alternative force and patterned their name after that. Like, so I do know what they were trying not to achieve um, in the series. So David Kirkwood, who was part of much as uh, like sales and marketing team and Susan Arthur. So I spoke to them about, about the formation of the series and, uh, and Kirkwood uh, at one point was like, you know, my, my son was very much in the demographic of this compilation that we're shooting for. And, you know, and he looked at absolute nineties, you know, like, I don't know if you remember that compilation. I do, had yeah. like a skateboard full of band stickers and stuff. I thought it was super cool at the time. You know, like, <laughs> like I was like, you know, like suburban, you know, 13 year old me was like, this is the cool CD ever. <laughs> but, um, but the feedback that I think that, that, uh, that David got from his son was that it looked like something that a 40 year old executive put together in a boardroom. <laughs> so they were like, okay, we don't, we don't want to go that direction. You know, like we don't want, we don't want to be, to be something which, um, you know, absolutely tries to mimic the language and the iconography of, of like a 14 year old skateboarder, you know what I mean? So right. they were trying to veer away from that. So I think they, they kind of chose a name that was, uh, that, that maybe held a bit more, like a bit more clout in a way. Did you get into, uh, any of the marketing ideas that they had for the, for the series and any of the motivations behind shooting a specific commercial or, or composing a print ad or anything of that nature? Um, not so much. I do. I, I do remember that they that they did do like a full court. I, think they, I believe they did a full court marketing press um, for it. And you know, the, and the commercials came out. You know, like in the fall, right in t- right in time for Christmas buying season. Um, but no, I didn't explore that that much. What about the um, expectations that they had for the series? Did you uh, get into that at all with some of the people you talked with them from uh, much? Yeah. Well, I think that it was. Um, I think it was a little, it was a little bit of an unknown, and I think it, it very much exceeded expectations. In that, I in that I believe it went the first one went diamond, and um, you know, and then after that, it kind of became I think as Kirkwood said, like it kind of exceeded their expectations, and it kind of became just like you know, like he described it as like you know as like the yearly Beatles album that comes out, you know, it's something that everyone anticipated once they saw the success of the first one. 
um, which was very true, right? Like I think that especially in the '90s, right? Like it was uh, like I remember completely anticipating like what songs would be on this year's on this year's on this year's version, what Canadian bands would be featured, you know. Actually, uh, some more details into the actual making of the book. Um, how long did it take you to, to uh, compile the interviews, to write the book, and finally get it published? And then roughly how many people did you talk to for the book? I, I would say that I probably spoke to, I would say like 20 people maybe, maybe a bit more. Um, it took me a really long time, though. Um, I will say that, uh, so when I met with Eternal Cavalier, I met with them, I think, in the, you know, in the summer of 2015 or, or so. Um, I met with them that summer. And they were like, so when can you get this book done? Like, can you get it done, like, by, like, you know, the wintertime? And I was like, yeah, you know, I write on the internet. I can write super fast. That sounds great, <laughs> you know? And, you know, and bless bless my patient publishers. Um, they're, they were fantastic, but it took me years longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, at the time I was working at the Toronto Star, and I was just trying to shove in interviews into, like, the breaks I had at work. And, <laughs> nice. you know, I worked, like, the night, like, you know, like I worked at a newspaper, so tons of weird hours, right? There are times where I'd be working from like four to midnight and, uh, and I had to just try to shoehorn in interviews wherever I could. And, um, so it took me a lot longer than anticipated. And, you know, and when I was trying to write a book too, I, you know, I, I used to think I was a super fast writer, but I've never really written anything that was, um, quite this long form. Right. So it, it, there's a lot of second guessing, you know, (laughs) like, and, you know, there's a lot of just like fact checking. You know, I, I had a lot of fear that I was getting something really wrong. Or, you know? So when you kind of lay down to lay out a book like that, is it kind of like writing a screenplay or a script where you have like things plotted out on index cards so you know where you want to go? Or you just start writing like it's a novel and, you know, wherever the, the story takes you? Well, I had a really basic structure to it. Like which I outlined to my outlined to my publishers. Um, I didn't I didn't really have a formal pitch, but we we just kind of sat down for a beer, and I was like, okay, this is what I think my book is going to be like. So it wasn't so much index cards, but it could have been right where where I you know I knew that I would have an introductory chapter which I'd all which I'd written and shared with them. You know, then I would have the background, the making of the compilation, and then um, and then a chapter focusing on each Canadian song uh, because you know the publisher Eternal Cavalier focuses on Canadian music, so. But then when it actually came to writing it, right, like uh, like a lot of it was um, was, you know, I, I lined up my interviews, the types of people who I wanted to reach, um, you know, people from labels, people, uh, people from music stores, uh, you know, like so like I have a sociologist who I spoke to in the book. Um, and once I lined them all up, you know, it j- like a lot of it was just like it came together quite fast. Once I had my interviews together, I would just slam together these pieces and ship them off and ship them off chapter by chapter to my publisher to look at. One of the interesting things in the book is that you talk about the sequencing of the record. Like you, you, you mentioned it earlier about opening with "I Am Mother Earth," and then in the middle of Sloan, and then towards the end is is a Pluto with Pace. Can you maybe talk about the significance of the placements of each of those tracks? So, I mean, I think that you know, very broadly, like you can tell that 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 the the, the compilation was sequenced in a way to give maximum exposure to Canadian music to the Canadian music, musicians on it. I should say. Um, they're kind of sprinkled the beginning, middle and end. Um, and nothing really seems like an afterthought. So like when I look at it, it's almost like it reminds me of like the mixtapes and mix CDs that I used to make for people. Right. Like, <laughs> like in that, you know, in that if you think every song is valuable. Right. And I'm sure each of these songs, the big shy dudes had their backers. Then you, then you want to you want to kind of ensure an order, which makes sure that which ensures that everything is heard. So. 
you know, I'm Mother Earth uh, with One More Astronaut as the first track is amazing, you know, like especially considering it's followed up by Machine Head by Bush and, you know, Bush 1996 were a, a huge act, right? Um, so yeah, so, you know, I'm Mother Earth, I, you know, I think opening on that track in specific, uh, it's, you know, it was I'm, I'm Mother Earth kind of stepping out of the kind of alt metal scene, right? And right into the alternative scene. And that was amazing. I feel like that was very much a move which also was informed by their popularity on much because they were also just like such a photogenic band, you know, <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like, like Edwin was, was like the can rock hunk, you know, one of a few. And then you have like the Tana brothers, right? Like who, like, who went, who went from, from like having this, like, you know, dread, like dready metalhead sepultural look, right. To, yeah. to like, to being this to, to being this you know like to looking incredibly slick and yeah it's just kind of like like the debut of a brand of of like a brand new sound and uh, and you know a real flagship band for can rock at the time and what, what about the fact that a canadian band opened up the cd did you read anything to that or find out that you know because it's chock full of you know international acts the biggest of the time or they open up the record with a canadian song yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the time I did, and and, and I still do. I think you know. Um, I I think that it's like very broadly speaking, it's it's the same message that CFNY, which was you know in Toronto, um, a big radio station, and much were really trying to push at the time, which was that you know Canadian music deserves to be here, right? In this compilation full of international hits, you know, um, you know the, the fact that it leads off with a Canadian song. And a really good Canadian song, you know, is proof that we have the stuff here north of the border, right? Like that we may that the industry might be might be much smaller, but we're still creating, you know, incredible music here. Um, and I, for that reason, I think it's really important, right? Because it goes on this run of you know Bush, Porn for Pyros, Garbage, Marilyn Manson, like Scooby Snacks, you know, huge song, <laughs> right? So just a girl, like so, you know, the fact that that uh, that a Canadian song, you know, took precedence on the track list ahead of those songs, I think was a real strong statement that, you know, that this stuff deserves to be heard. This stuff is actually good. Exactly. I've always thought too, like it really, you know, in the same way Edgefest and Somersault and those things did later on um, as a touring festival, uh, really legitimized Canadian bands in the eyes of a lot of people saying, you know, we always knew, you know, the music was just as good, but now they're, you know, they're not out of place on an album chock full of those heavyweights. You know, they're, they, they hold their own. Totally. And, you know, it's part of that is definitely that like that, like Canadian meekness, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, sure. like, like, where we're sitting here, we're like, see, we deserve to, we deserve to <laughs> the table, you know, like, um, which is so funny. But I mean, but it's but it's absolutely true, though. Right. Like, I mean, I, I think that um, that I mean, like, especially as someone who was listening to this album at 13, you know what I mean? Like, like I very much saw, you know, I'm of Earth on par with Bush or porn for Pyros. I mean, I didn't know who Perry Farrell was really at the time. Right. So like <laughs> it makes a big difference. And, you know, and I, I, like, I will fully say too, that after that run of hits, right. Like the next Canadian song that comes up is the good and everyone by Sloan. Everyone, you see the good in everyone. You 
which is like um, not probably it probably wasn't my favorite song back then on the on the compilation, but it's one of my favorites now. And um, and that is an absolute like monster hit, you know, like it's um, it is like a piece of really, really perfect power pop. Um, and I would I would almost even argue that it kind of outshines the tracks that come after that, like the King of New Orleans. Good song, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I, I would argue that good everyone's a better one. And what about the inclusion of uh, Pluto and uh, later on the record and you know, Limb Lifter and Moist? Oh, yeah. And, you know, where did you find, uh, did you find any significance in the placement of those tracks, you know, within the body of the album? Yeah. I mean, I think you can start to see, like, um, that this is where they start gambling a little bit, right? Where they start, these are the, the, the picks where, that they think are going to be big, bigger songs, you know? Um, like, for example, you know, Ophelia was a, is, a, is a huge song. Um, but it wasn't one of Moist's biggest hit, hits at the time, and you know, and and like I guess Tinfoil was that was actually a, you know, one of the bigger limb lifter songs at the time. But um, but yeah, I, I think that you really start to see, um, you know, the programmers I imagine starting to really just exert their influence later in the compilation. You know, you look at Raven Drool, um, which you know, <laughs> which I know that you have an affinity for. <laughs> yes, and I, I have a huge affinity for the Killjoys too. Um, it, like a great band they, they still sound amazing um mike treblecock yeah such a nice guy man mike treblecock such a nice guy oh my god yeah he, he played the release uh he played he like he played the uh like you know like the book release like and it was incredible he just it was him and his acoustic guitar it was so good that's awesome <laughs> um but yeah like you know like I, like pluto is probably the smallest band back then and now on this on this compilation in terms of canadian bands but um but you know, Pace is an incredible song, and it was a really great gamble on what was a really young band at the time, right? Like, they're probably the least established band uh, on this entire compilation. And what to? Uh, I mean, you talked to many of the band, the Canadian bands who appeared on the album. Um, what was the general response for the musicians who were on the album? Looking back on it now, I mean, where was it significant for them as it was for a lot of the fans of the time? Yeah, you know, it really was. Um, so, of everyone I spoke to. I think it represented really big songs for most of these bands, aside from, you know, I'd say like, you know, Moist, who I, who I didn't speak to actually, but um, <laughs> for reasons, if you read the book, you'll, you'll understand why. <laughs> yeah. 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 I can see why they would not take your call, sir. <laughs> yeah. They seem good natured about it, but still, or at least their PR people did. But, um, but yeah, like, you know, like for a lot of bands, you know, like, like I think for, you know, a Pluto and for a Killjoys, you know, like, like, like these were some of their, of like their flagship songs, like the songs that really define the band in that era. But I did find that, um, that in the Sloan chapter, I spoke to Jay Ferguson and, um, and he was really kind of one of the interviews who directly addressed, um, how important the compilation was to the mm-hmm. band. Um, like he definitely, he definitely like understood it as, you know, as an important marketing vessel, right? Like he was looking at, like one of the things that he mentions in the book is that, uh, is that it gave them a huge reach. Right. Um, and he was one, also one of the few musicians who actually talked about the financial impact that it had. So, you know, he, he mentioned that they would have gotten a good royalty check out of it. He, he mentioned that it, that it might've underwritten Navy blues, right. For a band that was on the, on the verge of breaking up, uh, when, uh, when the good and everyone came out, mm-hmm. you know, it's, that was a huge success. And and you know he mentioned that that that, that you know it's it's probably likely that some of the some of the financial success that came from being on the compilation helped underwrite Navy Blues. 
you spoke early in the book about uh, gateway albums and this being a gateway record for a lot of people. Can you maybe expound a little bit about um, why you think this would be a gateway album for a lot of kids at the time? Oh yeah, this was huge. Like for like, um, it's it's really funny because um, I think the reason as to why I uphold it as such a gateway album is because like at the time, you know, when this came out, I was in middle school um, and I lived in the suburbs of Toronto, um, about 40 kilometers north of Toronto in a town called Richmond Hill. And, um, you know, and it was a big town, I think by, you know, by Canadian standards, right? Like right now it's like a 200,000 person town city, right? Really? Right. right like, yeah, it's like Regina. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like Regina is a place that, that, that is definitely, definitely on the Canadian map. Richmond Hill is not, but, <laughs> um, but you know, it was, but it, you know, it was a very sleepy suburb and there were lots of places like this, right. You know, 40 minutes or 40 kilometers north of Toronto by public transit, it would take, you know, an hour and a half, two hours to get into Toronto. You know, the buses stopped running at seven 30 in this place and you had to walk everywhere. Everything was impossibly like far apart. It didn't really feel like, like there was much in terms of any culture or music or anything really happening in Richmond Hill. Cause it was a suburb. Um, like famously, really, it's like the only real notable person that they produced that time was Elvis Stoiko. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. But um, so you know, like much music in specific was a real lifeline. Like I remember, like my sister and I, you know, like my parents worked in the city, so they would get home at you know like nine o'clock at night, and you know my parents weren't really that into music, but my sister and I were. So we would just you know we would watch hours and hours and hours and hours of much music every day, you know. Um, and, you know, and when something like Big Shiny Tunes came out, it was just like non-negotiable. You know, I would be like, we're, we're buying this album. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and, the, the, and in terms of being a gateway, I think what makes it such a great gateway is, you know, I might not, you know, when I was 13, I might not have been as familiar with a band like Pluto or Sloan or something. Right. Like, uh, um, but I certainly would have known Garbage or Marilyn Manson or No Doubt. Right. And those might have been the reasons that I bought the album. Right. But then, you know, uh, this is kind of pre-file sharing, pre-Napster and stuff, right? Like, you know, and, and I didn't have many C's at the time because I didn't really have much disposable income. And I think that's true of a lot of, you know, 13-year-olds or whatever, right? So, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I absolutely listened to every, like, I listened attentively to every second of this album. Like, I would watch, you know, Much East and retain everything I could. I would watch, you know, French Kiss and retain everything I could. Well, I'd watch Rap City and retain everything that I could. Because, you know, um, when you live in a suburb and you're, and you're really disconnected from these, you know, these actually creative scenes, right? They look, they're fascinating to you, right? Like, you, you listen so attentively to the music. You listen, you pay so much attention to the aesthetic. And I think through that, like, you know, it leads you down different rabbit holes, especially when you are bored and 13 and love music and have more time than, you know, than money. Right. So you start, so I think from there, right. You look at a band like Sloan and you start and you're like, well, where does this band even come from? Right. And then you're like, Oh, they're from Halifax. Right. And then you start reading a lot more about Halifax, right. At the time, you know, like, you know, it's like spin magazine is putting out stories about, about Halifax and there's, they're seeing in sub pop and you know geffen are paying attention to what's going on in that city and then you start looking at other bands right you start and then through slowing you start you start looking at you know like at like a thrush hermit and then from the thrush hermit you might look at eric's trip and what's going on in moncton and then you start getting connected to all these little labels and it's a snowball effect right and you know during the cd era right like it's just um it was a lot harder to find out about a band right or about 
regional scenes. So, you know, if you found an Eric's trip CD at <laughs> the local Richmond Hill Music World or whatever, right? Like it felt like absolute gold. You know, you're paying $27 for it, but it's <laughs> it's <laughs> absolute gold. And then you listen to the crap out of that CD and then you 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 pour through the liner notes for other Moncton bands, you know? Um Exactly, yeah. And like I don't know, you know, it's the type of thing that that you know, when music is so new to you when you're that young and and you just want and you're just grasping for any connections you can, you learn you end up learning so much, right? Like, like I look at, um, like I look at kind of like how my musical taste developed and, you know, in high school, I got really into punk and hardcore and metal. And then, you know, as I grew older, I got into indie rock and I got into indie pop and then electronic music and a lot of different things. But like, I look at a band like Killjoys, right? Like they were from a town that was really close to Toronto. They're from, you know, Hamilton more or less. And, you know, I just looked at that and, and it, it, you know, it made Hamilton seem like a completely exotic place <laughs> right like a place that's it's a completely unknown city and you know like you'd look at a band like that and you say oh well you know there's like they're from hamilton i wonder if anything else is going on in hamilton you discover you know sonic onion and you know and you discover bands like chore and you spoke to mike bell um in the pod and you know and and then it also started to unlock like like local scenes too right like it's um like outside of the compilation, I was really when I was in in, uh, in high school, I was really into Rusty, you know. And nice, yeah. Like famously, when I worked at when eventually when I when I started working at Ox, the publisher and I, unbeknownst to us at the time, both ran Rusty fan sites when we were like fifteen. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> both ended up in music journalism, you know. Uh, <laughs> but you know, that's like like that, that's the power of these compilations, and much in general, right? Is that like when you start exploring, you start to discover that there are. That there are, you know, that there were re these really rich musical scenes around you and from places that, you know, that were seemingly really small, right? Like it's just, you know, like Chor was a band that was that was from, you know, outside Hamilton from the, from the Niagara region, right? And, and you know, I looked at and, and it, made, it made the world seem so much more accessible. Like I look at also Hayden, right? Always played much music. And bad as they seem, right? That guy was from Thornhill. He was from the, he was from the suburb that was south of mine, you know, like that album cover looks looks like the house's existed in Richmond Hill, you know, so, yeah, you know, it, I think when you talk about gateway albums, right, like these, like, these are albums that you, you buy for one reason, they lead you down a completely different path, like, so. Did you ever get a sense of, through your conversations, that anybody outside the borders is aware of the Big Shiny Tune series and how sniffing it was for a lot of people of, uh, you know, teenagers of the time? Like, from, from my very anecdotal, uh, like, experience with this, no one knows what it is, like, <laughs> So like like by the time I'd got to university when I when I started university we were we were still carrying around those giant books of CDs right like you know we would always just kind of joke that every time you go you'd be looking for a specific CD or whatever you'd open up the, you'd open up the case you'd you'd look behind the liner notes expecting to hear whatever like you know okay computer and you what well, you'd find those big shiny tunes because there were so many of them just kicking around but anyways you know when when I arrived in university everyone had these case logic. <laughs> like booklets of all their CDs, and we started making friends from, especially you know, like, like New York and Massachusetts. I went to school in, Mon in Montreal, and there were a lot of people who, from you know, the Northeast, basically in the states, who would come uh, and go to school as well. And you know, they would have no idea, right? Like, like every Canadian would have these big shiny tune CDs, and Americans would just be like, "What is this?" I know, like, you know. <laughs> I know three quarters of the band on the CD, but, but like, why do you, why do you all have this thing? Like, what is this? <laughs> you know? And like, 
and then you and then you'd have to explain that it's like oh you know like much music it's kind of like it's kind of like Canada's MTV but it's not you know like there's a real big focus on Canadian music which is like you know it's kind of it's kind of a foreign concept to Americans so yeah anecdotally no one knew what it was. How did the record sell in Canada? I mean, was it a big 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 shiny success out the box or was <laughs> it you know did they have to work towards the marketing? Do you remember like how quickly it gained um, gold status and so forth and kept climbing? Yeah, well, I, they they like I think Big Shy Tunes sold, uh, you know, I like, I guess I'll like I'll, I guess I'll kind of phrase this a different way because like I basically start start my book with a really absurd statement and it's kind of in bad faith if I'm being honest, <laughs> but that there's a time in K music where you can make the argument that Big Shy Tunes is bigger than Nirvana's Nevermind, which is you know, to my knowledge, you know, like like the you know the biggest alternative album of that era you know if if not in sales at least in influence and i think that just kind of speaks to um to the amount of sales like i think big shy tunes one hit platinum i believe and two hit diamond and you know these are really absurd uh like sales numbers that you know if they can if they can dwarf the sales in that year in that year of you know of the nirvanas of the world they can certainly i would be willing to wager that they far far dwarf the sales of a band like sloan who were actually quite huge at the time what do you think the lasting kind of cultural impact of something like big shiny tunes is i think that it really really cemented a generation of canadian artists into our like cultural memory right like it's um so like you know like a lot of these a lot of these bands i think still like still have very much like you know like careers and cultural relevance because of the songs they've contributed to to this album. And, you know, I think it's a little different than um, the kind of CanCon that came, that came before it. Right. Like if you go back to like the, the Neil Young era, it was kind of assumed that bands had to go to the States to make, to make it, to make it really big. Right. Like they had to move to LA, they had to move to New York. Um, and, then, and then after that we did, we had, we had, you know, a lot of bands that probably would have been considered a little schlocky, you know, like, um, but like, you know, I think, starting you know in the 90s you start to see a real a real rise of of like you know of regional scenes that that people really paid attention to and a lot of and a lot of independent successes you know like there's like bare naked ladies obviously kick off the 90s with with you know with an incredibly an incredibly successful release um but yeah i mean i think that that, that it just kind of lays the groundwork for for a lot of the explosions that we saw throughout the 2000s and 2010s in Canadian music, right? Like, I think that, um, and maybe I'm wrong, this could be just my perspective, but, you know, Big Shiny Tunes and much music of the 90s really, um, really established regional scenes, really established the fact that Canada's West is different than Canada's East, which is can't, different from Central Canada, which is different from, you know, from Southern, you know, the Southern Ontario scene and so on. So, like, in a way, it kind of, it kind of, for, it kind of forced us to take our regionalism and our differences a lot, a lot more seriously. Right. And, and you can see the impact that kind of had on, for example, the indie rock of the two thousands, right? Like where you saw how Montreal scene started to really, really heat up. Right. And Toronto scene really blew up, you know, and then through the late 2010s, you know, like, like, or sorry, the late two thousands, you know, Calgary, a lot of, a lot of really great bands are coming out of Calgary and Vancouver that really reached, that really have, you know, this national tension. And I think that a lot of this is, isn't really possible without the groundwork that much music lays and that big shiny tunes lays. 
And uh, we'll start to wrap this up soon, but uh, what is your favorite uh, Big Shiny Tunes entry of the 90s editions? I have, a, I have a big soft spot for one, and I think that it really, the, the type of music that was on Big Shiny Tunes 1 really informed my musical taste, just like even to this day, I think it still involves what I'm interested in. Um, and Big Shiny Tunes obviously was a huge monster hit, like the, the biggest hit of the, of, the ser- of the series. I would probably put that second. I, I really do like the introduction of, you know, of electronic acts. Um, and some of the, the Canadian songs that are amazing, like Drinking L.A., Numb by Holland McNarland, um, I believe, yeah, Temptation mm-hmm. uh, was on that, the Tea Party, really, really great songs. Looking back on writing your first book and writing it about Big Shiny Tunes, um, what do you think some of the most interesting stuff, either an anecdote or an actual fact that you, you learned through your research and your interviews? You know, I think the thing that, that really sticks out to me is like the amount of impact that much music had on a generation and the big shiny tunes had in a generation, right? Like it was like somewhat, it was almost surprising. Like for me, you know, I wrote this, you know, like when I was a full fledged adult, so I feel like I maybe should have known better, but you know, like to hear it as a marketing and, and sales exercise, right? Like, like it's really funny because of course it was right. Like it makes perfect sense, but um, but the perception I had at the time was really, really different, you know, and it was like, it was, a, it was like a really precious thing to me at the time. And it, it you know, and, and much music of the era is, I think, I still think really precious. Right. So I think mm-hmm. that it's interesting to me that, um, that like, that like they might've sound cynical about it. I don't think they really were particularly cynical. Like, I think that they understood the power of, of much music and, and what they were doing with that station, with the series. But, um, yeah, I think the thing, that, the thing that, that really sticks out is that we is that we had such different perspectives, right? Like they like they had such incredible influence um, on me, and you know, and and you know, and for and for me, it's it's like when I bought Big Shiny Tunes, I never thought of it as something which was like a sales marketing exercise, right? Like I thought that it was a fantastic way to find music, you know. So, is there anybody that you wanted to talk to for the book that you couldn't reach or that wasn't interested in discussing the book, and what would you have liked to ask him if you would have had the chance? Oh my God. Okay. So I would have loved to, to have spoken to David Usher. Um, so like in, in my book, basically, because I was not able to reach moist, um, you know, like, like, or I should, I guess, rewind a little and, and give you the reasons as to why I wasn't able to reach moist. Um, like when I used to work for Ox, I just used to make fun of, of moist all the time, just because they would have like, like, you know, in retrospect, couple like decades later, they would have these songs that were just like tantric and dark and, and, and dark and sensual, right? They and like like when I look back at them, I was like, oh, these are just like these are just like Fifty Shades of Grey lyrics, you know? Like, and <laughs> so I just started making all sorts of just tantric jokes, and it became kind of just like, you know, like one of my things I used to do for Ox. I used to write just. Anytime I'd write about moist, I would just I would just make moist jokes the entire time, and that's all my chapter is in this book. Um, so, like, you know, when it came to, when it came time to interviewing them, like I remember at one point they offered Ox an interview for when they were reuniting, and I responded and I was like, "Hey, I would absolutely love to interview Moist. Here's what I've written for them in the past." And then, they, and then their publishers came back. They were like, "That's funny, but no, maybe not you." <laughs> so. <laughs> But like, you know, I, I, I don't think that David Usher is humorless. I don't think that you can, that, that like, that, like, I think that he, that he would look, he, you know, like he, right now he's, he's like a Ted talk guy, you know, he gets like motivational speeches and stuff. And I think that's a fascinating career track, you know, like, um, 
like he went from being in a giant alt rock band that had extremely hilarious tantric lyrics and now he's and, and like and now he's you know he's a really successful speaker you know uh, and it looks like he kind of works in the tech world right now and i would have loved to just to, to, to just hurt to hear his perspective like honestly you know and i would have loved to just like hear what his reactions were to some of the things i wrote about him you know like <laughs> um but I, yeah i really wish i spoke to someone i would i really wish i, worked, I spoke to someone from moist is there a band of like a personal favorite of yours that didn't make Andani's big shiny tunes that you thought were, really would have benefited from it, really would have took them to the next level of Canadian success? Oh yeah, this is totally a. Um, I guess not like a broken record here, but <laughs> yeah, like I love Rusty. Um, I think that they were a great band, put, and I think that all their records sound different and are and are are fantastic, right? But um, I probably would have thought that something off of Fluke. Which I believe was put out in 1995. Let me just check that out. Uh, 95, yeah. So they would have been right in time for Big Shy Tunes 1 or 2. The singles off that album were amazing, though. Like Misogyny um, was an incredible single. Uh, something like Groovy Dead. I hit top speed, I
would have been great in like I think for the Ophelia spot, which was kind of a secondary single but a great song, right? Mm-hmm. And and that was a band that I thought could have really had a lot more a lot more mainstream success, especially as they kind of moved into more of a country direction too on their next album or a kind of a garagey country direction. Um, I think they could, that they definitely could have been one of the, uh, you know, they could have been a lot more like nationally renowned, I believe. What has the reaction to the book been like from, you know, the people that you've interviewed for the book or other music people that you're or friends or, you know, it's been great. Um, you know, I initially was absolutely terrified, right? Like, um, <laughs> Because you know, it was my first book, and and you know, th- like the way that I write, it's like I I really like to poke fun at everything that I like, you know. So like, and so you know, like I like to make fun of bands. I like to you know, that's just like I like to make fun of my favorite bands, my favorite music. I I generally find the things I'm in- interested in kind of funny, and I I find the trends of different era funny, you know. Like, but I was very much afraid that that I think people would look at it as almost like blasphemous, right? That, that mm. you're taking something that's so precious to them. That was such an important part of the growing up process and making jokes about it, you know? So I was initially really afraid and I was really also, I mean, like when, when it comes to like big shiny tunes, there wasn't much of a, like a, like a journalistic precedent, you know, like there, like no one had really done much of a journalistic exercise about it. So I was really kind of, I was really worried that, you know, that I wasn't asking the right questions or that, I was that I had misrepresented people or that I was getting facts wrong. Um, but you know what? The, the reaction has been great. It's, it's really nice to see people discover it. It's really nice to see people, you know, every now and again on Twitter, I'll get tagged in someone's tweet asking about, you know, about where they can consume more things about Big Shy Tunes. Are there podcasts about it? Are there books about it? And every now and again, I'll get tagged in, which is really nice. And, you know, it's made it into the library system, which is like, honestly, a dream right like <laughs> i remember sure, yeah. like, like i remember just like when covid was starting i kept on getting tagged in all these tweets uh from like you know from saskatchewan right and where people were were borrowing it from the library and i was just oh. like wow that's like really cool like just to think that people are you know reading and enjoying this thing that i spent a couple of years working on you know and that it's part of like the public record you know <laughs> like it's still kind of, like <laughs> you're now the authority on the subjects so. <laughs> yeah, I I want to be clear. I do not position myself as an authority, <laughs> thing, but. <laughs> so, uh, where can people find the book online? Where where can people go to buy it? So you can buy it off Amazon, but I would recommend uh, buying it directly off the publisher, which is they're called Eternal Cavalier Press. Cool. And uh, if you were to write another book on '90s Canadian music, what do you think the next topic would be? What still interests you about the era? Oh, geez. I would, I feel like I would probably do something regional, you know, I think that there's, um, I, I think that's what's so interesting to me about, about Canada is that it's so far flung, right? Like, and a lot of these, a lot of regional scenes just kind of, they like, they develop in isolation, which means that they end up being kind of weird. And, and I love that, right? Like, um, you know, I've lived in a, in a bunch of different Canadian cities, um, and and it, it was always really interesting finding out what the regional scenes were like. I live in Montreal, lived in Halifax, I lived in Calgary, and you know I'm from Toronto. But um, all these scenes just developed so strangely. Like Halifax is, in the, and just the Maritimes is, is just so weird because they're so far away from everything. You know, in Calgary's, I remember when I was getting to know some of the bands and the history um, behind the bands and their their specifically like alternative and indie rock scene. I remember a lot of bands would say that they developed a really strange style because there's nothing to do there over the winter, right? Like, you just mm-hmm. like, you talk to a band, like, I don't know, like, like women or something like that. You're like, how did you develop this weird post 
punk cells. A lot of it's just like, you know, we were like, we got nothing to do with play all winter, you know, like, <laughs> um, as a, you know, it's incredibly hard to tour too, right? Which makes, you know, especially in the West, right? Like going from Calgary to BC is, you know, or to Vancouver is a 45 minute flight or something, but it's, but to drive it, you know, you have to cross, you have to cross those Rockies, right? Um, because of that, like you look at Vancouver scene and it's also completely isolated, right? Like, like, um, it's a scene that might borrow a lot more heavily from, you know, Seattle and, and Washington state, uh, than, than a scene like Calgary, right. Which, uh, which has, which has, you know, like its own set of influences and, you know, in a place like Ontario, I think you kind of got into this with Mike Bell as well. Um, but you know, it, that, that is, such, that is a huge population center, right. Which means that bands could presumably tour. Like you look at a, a band like, I don't know, like on fire. They, they started off by playing, tiny towns all within you know a 40 minute drive of where they lived you know like mm-hmm. um so yeah that's probably what i would focus on because i think it's it's re- it's really unique all right so i have an official playlist on apple and spotify of all 90s can rock so since you've written a book about big shiny tunes i'm going to limit the band selections to a canadian band that appeared on a 90s edition of big shiny tunes so give me two singles in one deep cut oh geez okay great question by the way <laughs> great, great positioning great positioning i love it <laughs> and i i thought about this a lot because there's lots of great songs like brand bands brand van 3000 songs incredible sounds amazing drinking in la sounds like drinking in la but like yeah like so the first song that i pick i, I pick would be big rex that song okay cool so like i don't really know that much about them like i, I can't say that I was ever really a big fan of big rex like i was of you know of you know, like I'm at the earth or, you know, or Sloan, but so I never really bought any of their albums. And I honestly hadn't thought about them until quite recently until I, w- I was just like biking by on Toronto's Lakeshore and they were doing an outdoor drive-in show. Wow. Nice. And I was like, Oh, interesting. Big wreck. So, so I started thinking about them and I was like, okay, like that song was so good, but it wasn't my favorite kind of alt rock at the time. Like I think I was more into like the dorky power pop side of things. And in high school, I was probably, I probably thought I, this was, I was like too cool for it. You know, I was like, ah, some corny ball sack rock, you know, like, <laughs> it, but like it's stuck and it, and you know, and like when I think about it, it's, you know, it's just bold as hell to name your song, that song. Right. And, right, yeah. and it's also just like, just a stone cold jam. Like I, like I think it, it, it sounds like eight different things at once. So like, it, it's all just twists and turns, you know, like it starts off with that snare hit. And it's almost like this post-punk riff, you know? It's like it's drenched in reverb, and it sounds like there's, like, another riff that's run through a delay pedal. And, like, if you listen to it in retrospect, it kind of sounds like one of those, like, Joy Division worshipping indie rock bands from the 2000s. You know, like, the stuff that was really big in Montreal and Toronto at the time, you know? Like, like it sounds like something, before the vocals kick in, it sounds like something that arts and crafts would have really loved, you know? Like... (laughs) and, And then the vocals come in, and this is probably one of the reasons as to why I didn't I, I thought I didn't like it at the time. It's like these like stanky blues vocals, you know, like it's like, of course it came before, you know, like Scott Stapp and, and Nickelback and stuff. Right. So uh, like, but I used to just be like, this is kind of corny, but it really does sound like, you know, like you're dropping a pickup truck through the prairies blasting that song, you know, like it sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like it's good, you know, like it starts with, you know, like I always get nostalgic. It's such a perfect way to start that song because, they're just shooting for a song that will one day be nostalgic, right? Like it's so good. <laughs> um, it's just you know the kind of song that like I like I could just envision Big Rack writing that writing that song and being incredibly stoked. I could just see them being like, "We just got a record deal with this song," you know? Like <laughs> it's like the song that I kind of wish that I wrote, you know? Like, but yeah, like I think the best part of the song though is like, you know, 
is the chorus, which is just like an absolute monster. It's the perfect amount of cliched. You know what I mean? Like it's just like it's 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 cliched enough to sound familiar, even if you've never heard the song, which is perfect for going for nostalgia, right? Like, mm-hmm. and like, and I was thinking about why I think this chorus is so good. Um, and I think it's because I, I got really into hardcore in high school and, you know, early college years. And that's a genre that's really about dynamics, right? Like it's about it's about writing a fast song around a halftime breakdown that goes into a dance part, you know, like it's like it's it. And, you know, like a lot of hardcore focuses on dynamic and, and this chorus has that, right? Like where the chorus starts with that guitar blocking and then it drops to half speed and it just sounds huge, you know, like it's, massive epic song it's like that's what a heart a good hardcore breakdown would do you know stop it in its tracks drop it half speed you know <laughs> and then it's like and then you start hearing like the drop d guitars right like and it's like this fast moving like meathead riff right like and i love those things you know like like it, it sounds like the chorus in hey man nice shot by filter right like it's just like it's this, this fast moving drop d riff or like stars by hum or my own summer by deftones like it sounds like all this stuff right like Honestly, like hum fans might really hate to hear it, but this song is totally just like the song starts. It, it very much has that like big, wide open, like screaming solos, you know, like, so it's like, I don't know. It, it, it feels like, like when I listen, listen back to it, I was like, it's, it sounds like, like a band that ha- that's like stanky, you know, like if you got like a, it's like Scott Stapp doing a hardcore song. It's like so good, <laughs> you know, like, and like, I don't know, they, they could play that chorus like a zillion times. Like if they just stacked up that chorus for four minutes, I'd probably still like it, you know, like, <laughs> like, and like the only thing that would be, and like, yeah, the guitars also just sound just like weird and pristine. Like they sound like, you know, like James E has guitars, like, you know, like Zwan or something like a Smashing mm. Pumpkins guitars, right? This like trebly guitar stuff. And like the only thing that would have made that song better, I think is like, if they did a fake out at the end, you know, like, like I think about like hanging by a moment by Lifehouse, you know, like there's like a fake out. You think the song's done and they drop in with the chorus again. Like <laughs> that's the only thing that could make the song better. Like, cause it's just, it's so corny. It's so good. And I love it. Like, yeah. So the next song I picked probably also predictable. Cause I'm nothing but predictable <laughs> <laughs> is uh, the good in everyone by Sloan. So for the book, I spoke to Cam Lindsay along with Jay Ferguson and like Cam Lindsay is just like a a Sloan encyclopedia. He's like, (laughs) he's awesome. Like he's, yeah, he used to be like a researcher on the wedge and stuff. And you can just tell, you know, like, (laughs) um, so like when it came out, I remember I saw the video and I thought how dorky they looked, you know, I didn't get the easy rider references (laughs) at the time. I was like, who are these? Like, you know, I, I'm Chinese and I have immigrant parents and we, and like, for people like me, we feared the bowl cuts. We just feared those bowl cuts, right? And I, like, you know, like I definitely had them growing up. So I, I watched this video and I see these guys with bowl cuts, and I was like, "What the hell is this? They're drumming bowl cuts look cool now." You know, like whatever, right? Like, it's just like <laughs> not they had bowl cuts, but you know, that's what went through my mind. But, um, but then like that, the chorus is undeniable, right? Like the ooh, the good, you know, it's like that's the first part I really loved about it. Um. It, but like the thing that's great about this song is that it's all, it's all layers, right? Like if you, and you, when you actually start to listen back to it, it start like it's almost really impressive how they make all these different layers work. Um, and I think that's why I like this lone song over Money City Maniacs, which is an incredible song. But um, I like I would pick this song just because it's a song that you you kind of unpack later, right? And you start to realize that there's a lot of cool stuff going on. Like 
So like beyond that amazing power pop chorus where you can just hear how much they love the Beatles or the Cars or Big Star and all those bands, right? Like, um, like that really, like eventually I would grow to love a lot of those bands and bands like Live Lifter and Zampano and all these Canadian power pop bands. But like, um, aside from that awesome chorus, like you start to hear all the little parts that that make it weird. Like it starts off with an intro taken from Edgefest '95, which Cam told me about. You know, it was supposed to be their last show. Um, and then they have this intro riff that it's just like a minor threat riff, you know, it's like this weird syncopated intro riff that makes no sense in the context of the song, you know, like machine gun drums and that two chord verse, which is just like, they told me that, that they, it was kind of an homage to sex pistols. I could hear that, but it's how it's like just this great, like really messy. It's like this blend of messiness with this, like studio precision, like the hand claps sound so precise. It's like, it's almost like what Thrush Hermit were doing where everything sounds crisp and precise, you know, like, um, and then the solos, they just like, like the best thing about the solos in that song, they just have like, they just wail on one note. And I kind of love one of my favorite things I think in music are talented musicians who understand restraint, you know, and like, you know, Patrick Pentland wrote the song and you could just tell that, yeah, the, the guy could, play uh, you know like a giant tapping metal solo if he wanted to right you could play a big van halen solo <laughs> um which is what uh, jay ferguson in the book said he thought it sounded like van halen and i was like i don't know about that but <laughs> like you know it's like they're banging on three notes and it and it's, it just sounds so intentional it sounds so cool um it's and then it just closes again on that weird minor threat risk it's just like it's it's a really really um yeah, it's 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 a it's a song that like is much more than some of its parts, I'd say. And the third track. Okay, so this would be my deep cut then. Oh, you know what was so good off of uh, off of Pluto. I and I don't recall if it was a single or not, but Black Lipstick. Because yeah, I think the singles were When She Was Happy and and Pace, if I recall correctly. I think that's right. Yeah, that sounds right. Oh, uh, Black Lipstick though was like yeah, such an incredible song. Like they have that really perfect power pop sensibility you know like it's it's like i heard at the time that they were really looking towards halifax um so they're looking at you know at sloan the power pop bands coming out of halifax and you could really tell in a band like or on like a song like black lipstick where they just have like it's the the perfect mix of the of of being a song that's, that's a little scrappy that doesn't sound as you know perfect as a brush hermit song but then when, but then when those like harmonies in the uh chorus hit it's just so perfectly executed. It's just, um, yeah, it's, it's really great. Um, and yeah, like, I think that those are the types of things where it's just like, I, I heard, I would hear a song like, or an album like Pluto's album and, um, like going down the Pluto rabbit hole, right? Like that's again, like, I think to go back to the, uh, the concept of the gateway album, right? Like, uh, like I love the song like black lipstick or paste and, um, and then you look, you look back and then before this album came out, they just put out something on Mint Records, which was all about that, you know, indie pop and twee and Pacific Northwestern stuff, which became a really big obsession for me later in life. So it's, yeah, I loved it. Well, thank you so much for uh, breaking down those three tracks as well as selecting them, sir. I like the, uh, man, your music knowledge is, is, is deep. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's true. I think it's just, you know, I worked as a music journalist for a while and, you know. <laughs> well thank you so much for taking the time to to chat big shiny tunes with me today man it's been fantastic yeah it's been really fun thank you thank you so much for joining us today on raven drool please support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash rave drool follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this 
And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more 90s Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.